Exploring how we can transform our communities in the 21st century with the support of St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global, and me learning. Welcome. This is the Community Safety Podcast with your host, Jim Nixon. Today, the Community Safety Podcast tackles the important issue of honour-based violence. My guest joined the Metropolitan Police in the early 80s and rose to the rank of Detective Superintendent. She led on a number of murder inquiries, but one of the most important was the horrific murder of Banaz Mahmood. Please take a listen to a snippet of today's interview. Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Nixon. I've been working in community safety for over 25 years. This podcast will explore how we can transform communities in the 21st century. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest as Caroline Good, QPM. Caroline Good served for 33 years in the Metropolitan Police in London. She retired as a detective superintendent in the Counterterrorism Command. Prior to that, she spent 10 years leading in excess of 100 complex murder investigations. One of those investigations was the honour killing of a young Iraqi Kurdish woman, Banaz Mahmood, by her family, which was to become a life changer for Caroline. Caroline's role was played by Keely Hawes in the ITV drama Honour, covering Banaz's murder. She went on to train thousands of police officers nationally and internationally on a base violence awareness and was awarded the Queen's Police Policing Medal for her work in 2012. Caroline, welcome. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on to the Community Safety Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Oh, thank you very much. When I start interviewing guests, I think it's always important to just get a little bit of a flavour of your growing up, really. Not in masses amount of detail, but I just wondered, you know, what what, what was it like growing up for you uh, as, as a young Caroline? I had a lovely childhood, to be honest. Um, I, I am a South London girl, through and through. Um, and I come from a working class family. We were very, I would say, hard up but happy. I had a really caring um, caring parents who were really enabling and interested. Um, it's just me and my brother, and went, went to the local schools. I was I was quite bright at primary school, and I'm a bit of a pleaser. And I really just really loved everything about primary school. Um, <laughs> fell away a bit, I, I suppose, when it went to uh, secondary school. I discovered beer and boys, and you know everything went a, a bit awry, and uh, ended up leaving school with nothing more than five O levels and a bit adrift and not knowing what to do with myself. So what was the desire to join the Metropolitan Police then? What was what was that what was what was the sort of the, the trigger? I didn't have one. I, I I thought when I was a little girl, um, as many little girls do, I wanted to be a vet, mad about animals, and in particular dogs. 
um, but with the schooling not going as as well as it should have done, and not not sort of coming out with any qualifications, I was just adrift, and I, I had a series of um, office jobs that I absolutely hated. I mean, there was no question of not working in our family. You got out and got a job. That 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 was it. Um, but I was totally dissatisfied with anything that I was doing and I I really just didn't want to be doing an office job and I was moaning and moaning about it at home and one day my mum read the advert in the paper it was when they were doing a big recruitment campaign and she sort of said it as as a joke she didn't want me to join at all she said yeah I love you want to do something interesting what about this and I said that is that is it that is that really it just captured my imagination I just wanted a life less ordinary and by God, did I get one, you know, and and I so I fell into it and it was my saving. I, I, I loved it from the outset. You know, it wasn't easy by any means, but it was so interesting. Something different every day, complete culture change. Um, and, and it was wonderful. But I had no long gonna... term desire to do it. <laughs> Uh, that's interesting. I was probably similar. You know, I joined in 95, which is a bit later than you, but I was the same. It was something probably that always was at the back of my mind. But if I'm being honest with you, it it, it was something that kind of just happened. And But I'm like you, the minute it did and it happened, it was just the best thing that I'd ever done. And, you know, like you, I'm immensely proud of the, you know, the 20 years that I served, um, you know, in the Westman's Police. As a, I mean, you obviously joined in the 80s um what was what was you were 18 you know what was it like in the Met as a young you know 18 year old woman I joined an organization that was immensely sexist racist a bullying culture somewhat still corrupt um so it, it was difficult from that perspective. I, I, I'm not going to go into any details about the sort of thing um, that, that I experienced, but it resulted in me growing a really thick skin in order ju- just to survive. So some some of the you know abuse was very personal, and I had a sergeant that absolutely hated me. Um, but I'm just one of those. Those people, I guess, I was wasn't going to be bullied out of doing a job that I really, really wanted to do, and I I tend to not let people see if they're hurting my feelings. Um, so I I was already gobby before I joined. I won't say that's what made me gobby, but um, you, you know, I, I was determined to give back as, as good as I good as I got, and I guess that made things spiral, um, you know, worse, worse and worse. So I think the first year was particularly difficult, but I loved the work, loved the work. Um, and I remember one day dealing with a, a young girl. It was a night duty and a woman brought her seven-year-old daughter in and she'd been sexually abused by her dad. And in those days, there weren't any specialist teams for interviewing children or anything like that. Um, and I was the only woman on my shift as well, so the, the job fell to me. But people didn't even know, was she supposed to sign the statement at the top to say she was being truthful? Did she understand the truth? Should we do it as a question and answer session and write that down or what to do? I, I spent hours and hours and hours eliciting a story from from this young girl um, and went round with the CID in the morning to, to help um, arrest the perpetrator of course DNA wasn't a thing in those days or anything like that but 
it gave me a real taste for wanting to be a detective. And that statement earned me a reputation with the, with the CID, and it was the beginning of the most wonderful journey. Um, I, you know, I think that that little child will live with me for forever. Um, you know, I can remember her, her being examined by the divisional surgeon, um, and really treating her in the way we would have treated an adult. And that kid's screams will, will really stay with me forever. Strange memory you brought back there. Yeah, I was. Um... When we were talking yesterday before the interview, you said to me that obviously you don't, you only did a couple of years in uniform. And mm. I think you've just answered my my next question, really. It's clear that you had a very strong desire to kind of move into more investi- more complex investigative work. Um, and, 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 you know, that's sometimes that some people join the police and they're just naturally sort of steered towards that kind of life, aren't they? Yeah, I think that's one of the things I love most about the, the police is, is that it you can diversify in so many different ways. There's so many different paths that you can go down. There's a little bit of something for everybody. But I always knew that I wanted to be a detective and I wanted to run my own investigations. And I was particularly interested in investigating sexual offences. Um I say it was long before there were things like specialist child abuse teams, but I've since then I've made sure um, that I've taken my career. I've always worked on units that specialised in victim support. So I've I've worked in in child protection. I ran a dedicated rape investigation team. Um, those are the thing, you know, obviously the ten years in hom- in homicide. So people are my passion. That's that, that's what I enjoy doing. Um, it, it was a rocky career, to say the least. Um, I, I got pregnant when I had five years service in at a time when um, it just that wasn't compatible with, with, with policing. So I'd already been told by my superintendent that, that women were all uh, effing useless and a waste of time. And we were only there to get a husband and he didn't give me for more than five years anyway. What was the, what was the point in joining? Um, and it was so awful to almost prove him right. You know, I had to go and see him and tell him that, that I was pregnant. Well, in those days, you used to get paid until you were three months. Oh, you had to go off when you were three months pregnant. Sorry, get it right. You had to go off work when you were three months pregnant. They paid you till you were six months. And then you were just cast adrift. You were just off. Um, and not only was I I pregnant, I was unmarried, so I had no other income source and no one to support me. So I fought it through the Federation, um, not out of any desire to sort of be a hero or anything like that. I just, <laughs> just pure survival. Um, and I succeeded in getting the regulations changed. Um, so I was the first person to stay on till I was nine months pregnant um, uh, and had my had kid, came back after two months um, maternity leave um, and then spent a few years in limbo land you know they didn't know what to do with me when I came back I had you know they stuck me in one blooming office job after another it was absolutely awful but I was just grateful to to have a job to come back to in those days I didn't even really feel particularly hard done by I was bored but um you know I was just glad to be there and then when the kids got a bit older I staged a comeback (laughs) absolutely and what comeback you did make I mean, there is um, something, a clue there to me in terms of you fighting for your rights and fighting for the rights of other officers. And I think we'll come on to that in terms of your rugged determination to see things through to the end later on in the interview. But 
there's a little little inkling there of me of the type of person that you are. Um, you obviously um, rose to Detective Inspector around the time where we're sort of going to concentrate a lot of our interview today um, around the uh, the horrific sort of crime surrounding Bamaz Mahmood. Um, you were a DI then. You were um, obviously, um, it was your first SIO job, which is for people listening, senior investigating officer. How did you become involved in that particular case? Um, I think I had probably been on the Homicide Command for about six months, as best as I can remember at that time. So I had worked on a few murders, but not as the senior investigating officer. Um, and, and I'd had a few successes. Um, and then it, it, it came to pass that the man who was the acting DCI in charge of our team, he retired um, and there was me and one other guy who potentially could have taken over as as the acting DCI. Neither of us wanted the other person to get it. Um, we both thought we were the right person for the job and neither of us really wanted to work for the other one. Um, and I guess he just blinked first. He, he was offered a job somewhere. My, my competitor was offered a job elsewhere and it fell to me by default. Um, so I think it was a, a matter of great good fortune um, that, that I came to be running that team. Um, and it was the first week that we were we were on call, um, which means you pick up every suspicious death uh, that, that comes in that you go out to. Um, and then depending on your availability and your capacity, it depends whether you keep that, that job or hand it over to another team. No one likes handing jobs over to other team. We're, we're very sort of passionate about what we do. Um, and I, I just got a phone call from a local DI one one day to say he just wanted to to check with me. Really, he was worried about one of his missing persons, and he told me this story or part of a story um, about this twenty year old Iraqi Kurdish woman called Banaz Mahmud, and she had been reported missing by her boyfriend. He said, you know, we've been around the house and her parents don't want to report her missing. They're adamant that she is free to come and go as, as, as she pleases, as are all their daughters, and they didn't want to report her missing. And he really wasn't sure what to do about it. And he'd done a bit of research and he could find a couple of crime reports for when Bernads had been to the police station, but they were far from clear at that stage what, what was really going on. Um, so we, we kicked a few things back, backwards and forwards and I gave him a plan to uh, to progress with over the next 24 hours, which involved searching um, Benaz's home address and the grandmother's home address, uncle's home address, the boyfriend's home address, because we, we didn't know at that stage whether he could have been the suspect or not, uh, and to get um, you know a significant witness account from all of those people. And I said, if you haven't turned her up in 24 hours, I'll take that. I'll take it off for you take um because we do have the remit to do that in the homicide command you know we can take on serious crimes and and very vulnerable missing people as well and the resources that it would have taken to run that job on on Vara, which is the local police station uh, just isn't really manageable um and and that's how it happened he rang me back in 24 hours um and told me what they'd got been up to in in that time and, and i took it over from there oh. and um just a sort of bit, a little bit of um, context for the audience. Obviously, one of the things we're going to be talking about today is honour-based violence. Um, just for the audience, can you just can you just in simplistic form just just kind of explain what what that is? 
So in, in some communities, the honour of the family or the whole community rests on the conduct of its women. And so women are expected to behave in a certain way, um, really in a way that maintains their um, their chastity. I'm going to use an old-fashioned word, their, their, their chastity and their purity. And so there's a code of conduct that they're expected to adhere to. And if they step outside of those bounds, sometimes it's felt necessary by the family or by the community that they have to carry out a form of punishment. And quite often that can involve actually killing that woman or sometimes men in order to restore the honour of, of the community. And the way that it works is that, that you know, men will police, for want of a better word, they'll watch the women very, very closely, even following them around or maybe monitoring their mobile phone or just generally watching what they're doing. Um, and if they catch them out doing something that they disapprove of, then that will get reported up into the elders of the family. So whereas women get their status from what they adhere from doing, so from what they, sorry, that's not the right word at all, is it? Let's grab that one later. <laughs> Women gain their status from what they refrain from doing. Men gain their status from positive acts that they take to reinforce that law. Um, so, in you know, that's a one way of describing it. Am I right in saying as well, Caroline, that if a family loses that honour within the community that they effectively get ostracised and it's even to the point where they probably wouldn't even get served in shops or they, no one would do business with them. Is that how it works? It is exact, exactly that, Jim. It, it's a serious thing. You know, it might sound to someone from a, from a more Western culture where it's less prevalent that that's a ridiculous notion, you know, that you're so worried about what your neighbours or your friends or other members of the family think. You know, my mum used to say that all the time. Oh, my God, what are the neighbours going to say? Or, you, you know, you throw around expressions like, oh, my God, my dad's going to kill me. For people who are affected by honour-based violence, those things are very, very real. And, yeah, that that part of the family can be absolutely ostracised. Your kids won't be able to get married. You, you are just completely cut off um, from, from the rest of the community. So, you know, it's a serious thing. There's a much more of a sense of being part of a of a whole a wider whole and less focus on on the individual it's much more a belonging to a wider family or community yeah but as came uh, over to the uk with her family in 1995 um i presume they were they were fleeing saddam hussein at that time and they settled in south london Shortly after, probably a few years after she obviously settled in the UK and the family had settled in the UK, I would say she was effectively forced into a marriage at 17 years of age. Can you can you tell the audience a bit about that marriage and, and what it entailed? Yeah, but Benaz had only ever met her husband on one previous occasion. He was someone that had been chosen for her to marry. Um, I think that she was actually 16 when she was married and she she had absolutely no concept of what was going to happen to her after she was married so her husband was 10 years older than banaz he was um non-english speaking he was virtually straight off the plane from from iraq he came from the same little town in in 
um, Iraqi Kurdistan um, that Benazir's family had come from. And he was very, very adherent to that Kurdish culture and really believed in, in this honour system. And he led her an absolute dog's life. You know, he repeatedly physically and sexually abused her. There's a 16-year-old girl, and she was to say sub subsequently when she was interviewed, I didn't know if that was the way that it was supposed to be, even in, in my culture or, or, or in English culture. Um, he punched her in the mouth, knocking out uh, her teeth because he called her, she called him by his given name in front of a guest, which he felt was disrespectful. And on another occasion, he beat her because she couldn't spell a word that he'd asked her how to spell a word and she couldn't spell it. He thought she was laughing at him. So, so he punched her so hard, he knocked her off the seat in a bus stop, just like beat her onto the floor. And she put up with that for a long time because she wasn't sure. And she was made to feel that it was her fault, as so many as happened so often in any form of domestic violence. But eventually her family found out um, and they confronted her husband and he said, well, yeah, I do beat your daughter, but it's because she's disrespectful and I do force her to have sex, but only when she says no. And her parents thought that that was OK. They thought that that was justified and they told her to go back and try harder to be a better wife for her husband. Um, and bless her, she did go back and she did try, but eventually it became unbearable. Um, and she left him and she returned to live with her family in South London. What was quite interesting for me when I was doing my research, when Benaz was interviewed by the police, um, I think on the first occasion, she rightly describes that about him being sort of like, you know, 50 years ago with the way he treated her. But what really, really um, resonated with me, the way that she says that he treated her like a shoe. Yeah. He could basically wear me whenever, whenever he liked and that just, I mean, it is now, it's its sending a chill down my spine just thinking about it. Yeah, that, that, there's, a, there's a few things in that interview that, that will stay with me forever. And actually that, that expression is one of them as well. He treated me as if I was his shoe that he could put on whenever he wanted. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. But the other one for me is at the end of the interview, she says, now that I've given you my story, what can you do for me? Um, and the sad truth is that absolutely nothing was done for her. Um, and the system failed her badly. Yeah, I think that is a very, very um, sad part of that interview as well. I think those are the two key points for me as well, that when she says that, um, I think I was saying to you yesterday when we talked off record, you know, that you just want to kind of jump in there and say, I'll take care of you. I'll you help do. you now. But as, you know, <laughs> you do, you naturally do it. And, um, you know, it is what it is, but... And hopefully today we can raise more awareness moving forward. So she went back to live with the family. Clearly that didn't go down well. What's all happened next? Um, so the, the fact that she'd left her husband is justification in, in some of those people's eyes um, for having her killed in its own right. She's brought, she's brought shame on her family. She's brought shame on the groom's family, both here and, and, and back in Iraq. So that, that's the first thing that she was seen to have done wrong she was perceived to have done wrong. The next thing she did was that she reported to the police about the physical and sexual abuse. So, so for the abusers to talk outside of, of the family is an absolute no-no, but to cooperate with the police against her family, they viewed as the ultimate betrayal. 
So by now she was bringing herself to massive negative attention. But the thing that really sealed her fate was that she then started a relationship with another man. Um, Ramat, her, her boyfriend, and it was Ramat that reported her missing. You know, we wouldn't, I don't think, know to this day that she was missing if, if Ramat hadn't put his life at risk to, to come to the police and tell us. He was much younger than than Benazir's husband. He was very westernised because he'd been living in, in the UK for, for some time. Um, he was a nice-looking young man. He was very, very personable. Um, and the two of them were just besotted with each other. But it was a relationship that was never going to be allowed to work. Um, he, he wasn't... Um, he, he was Iranian Kurdish, he, he wasn't from, from Iraq, he wasn't from the same tribe, more importantly. And most important of all, he wasn't someone that the family had chosen for Benaz, he was someone she had chosen for herself. And of course, she was still actually married to her husband. So for all sorts of reasons, this was not going to be allowed to work. And the pair of them were warned in terms, you will not see each other. Um, young people being what they are they continued to see each other they thought in secret but as I explained to you earlier sometimes men follow women around in communities that are affected by honor-based violence um, and try and catch them out doing something wrong one of Benaz's cousins saw her with Ramat and reported into her uncle Ari Mahmoud who was the head of the family this is what I've seen Benaz doing the following day, there was what I would term a council of war at, um, at the home of Ari Mahmoud, to which all of the extended family, sorry, all of the men of the extended family were invited. And a decision was made there and then that both Banaz and Ramat would both be killed um, for bringing dishonour on the family. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. After that, decision was made there was an incident at um her grandmother's address uh on um, new year's eve i believe it was 2005 her dad had contacted her and and said that her, i think her grandmother wanted to see her and uh what what happened on that particular night well he he actually tricked benaz into going to her grandmother's house on the pretext of sorting out her divorce from from her husband which she really really wanted to happen and he said, oh, you know, Uncle Harry will be there and your you know, husband and his brother will be there and the gold would be returned and everything would be sorted out. But he said to her to um, hand over her mobile phone and switch off the phone, which she dutifully did. And he drove her to the grandma's house by a circuitous route that avoided all the CCTV. And when he got to the house, he made her carry a suitcase in, into that house. Um, and in all probability, that is the suitcase that Benaz ended up in. Once he, she was inside, he forced her to drink a bottle of brandy. This is a young woman that's not drunk alcohol before. I think subsequently I found out that she, she may have had an alco pop at some stage, but, you know, not a drinker, absolutely not a drinker, young Muslim girl. And when he felt that she was sufficiently stupefied, he told her to sit on the sofa, look at the television, don't turn around, don't look at what I'm doing. And she did look behind her and she caught a dad creeping up on her, wearing like rubber gloves and training shoes, uh, things he wouldn't normally be wearing. And she knew at that point that she was going to be killed. Um, she managed to 
beat him to the back door. The key, she said the, the key was still in the lock of the back door and she escaped out of the back door, smashed her hands through the next door neighbor's window to try and get um, help. And when that wasn't forthcoming quickly enough, she climbed over a fence and she staggered off up the road and collapsed on the floor of a nearby cafe, telling the people in there, you know, call the police, call the police, my dad's just tried to kill me, and saying to them, ring my boyfriend, call my boyfriend, let him know, because they'll kill him as well. She was even in that state that she was in then, she was more concerned for, for Ramat than she was for herself. Um, the police were called, as, as you can imagine, to that to that incident. And I'm ashamed to tell you that the police officers that turned up simply didn't believe what she was being told. She treated her with, with the utmost disrespect. Um, you know, we are told that she, she told her to shut up or, or I'll nick you for criminal damage to the window, to the next door neighbour's window. Um, and she, she, she just totally disbelieved her. So what there is to disbelieve, I don't, don't understand to this day because it was New Year's Eve, as you say, it's freezing cold. Here is a young woman, she's just wearing a pair of jeans and a T-shirt, she's got no jumper, no coat, she's got nothing on her feet, she's got no bag, she's got no phone, and she's bleeding from the hands where she's put her hands through, through the next-door neighbour's window. So even if you didn't know anything at all, about honour-based violence. That is a straightforward allegation of domestic violence. My dad just tried to kill me. It's not the police officer's job to be judge and jury on the street. You do have to make judgments, but your job's there to treat people with respect and to investigate, investigate the circumstances. And that just simply did not happen on that occasion. No, you know, she didn't, the police officer didn't go back round to, to, to the house to even see was there anyone there or whether there was a bottle of alcohol or, or, or what was happened. Um, and in fact, when she did go back and speak to, to father uh, later on at a different venue, the officer offered up the explanation for him. She said, oh, you know, your daughter's drunk and making up, up stories. She's obviously embarrassed about getting drunk and she's made up this story about you. So we couldn't have got it more wrong, I don't think, on that particular occasion when you when you spoke to the officer they they didn't believe they'd done anything wrong is that correct yes that 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 is absolutely wrong she, uh, sorry that is absolutely correct she she has always maintained the position that she wouldn't do anything different um she she you know she, she didn't get the the training which i agree she had no training but i don't think it's particularly relevant um, um, and just says she wouldn't do anything different, which is a very well, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I I tend to agree with you, and I don't want this to you know by any means. There's you know, we all know there's brilliant police officers there out there that do a massively brilliant job, but I, I've got to agree with you, Caroline. That you know, had I been the first officer turning up on that night, there would have been alarm bells ringing for me, and I'd have been sort of, you know what. If I'd have been a PC, I'd have been like, I'm going to get my sergeant down here and I'm going to get this looked at because I'm not happy, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You've always got other people around you that you can ask if if, if you don't, you know, if, if there's something that you're not quite sure of, of how to do. There's always somebody else in the police that you, that you can ask. And I think I, I can't imagine of being in a worse position of getting something wrong and someone else dying potentially as a result of my mistake. But it does happen. 
it does happen. And, and when someone's tried their absolute hardest and still got it wrong, then other officers tend to wrap their arms around them because none of us wants that to be us. And, you know, we're, we all try to learn from those mistakes, but it's it's a different thing altogether when someone is still so adamant that they were right. Yeah, I think you you've got to learn from your mistakes, you know, and you've got to. I'm a big believer if you if you make one, you put your hands up and you you put it right. Um, not that it's very easy to do that in this particular instance, but you know you learn from those mistakes. Um, so following that incident on the um, the New Year's Eve, which obviously didn't go to plan from Dad's point of view, obviously the fate was sealed. And then mm-hmm. Benaz had obviously gone back to the home address. And then on the, the morning of the 24th of January, uh, 2006, can you, uh, can you enlighten us on what happened on that particular day? Yeah, she had she had gone home, and I know a lot of people will think, well, that, that's strange. And certainly lawyers at court made big of it. Well, she couldn't have been that frightened of her family that she went home. But the choice, you know, she, she had no choice in the matter. That That's the truth of it. She had nowhere else to go. She had no support mechanism. The family beguiled her into going home. They promised her that nothing else would happen. They played on her guilt of, you know, your... Think about your sister's future. She won't be able to get married and think about your nephew. And she was a kind girl. And this whole concept of guilt and, and honour, you know, she'd, she'd already been made to feel that everything was her fault for what had happened. Um, and she wanted to put that right. And she and so she did go home. But her, her and Ramat pretended to the family that they'd stopped seeing each other and they hadn't. Um, and on the 22nd of December, a threat was made to Ramat's life. He had gone to visit friends in West London. When he came out, a car pulled up containing um, some Kurdish men and they tried to get him into to the car. In fact, they were friends of Ramat's. They're people that he had come to this country with. He knew them well. And they said, OK, Ramat, we, we can't take you now, but we are going to come back and we are going to kill you. We are going to kill Benaz. You can't carry on doing what you're doing. You're not English, you're Kurdish and Muslim and you're going to die. Um, he reported that to Benaz and the pair of them the following day came into two separate police stations to report the latest. So this is the latest in a series of events. Only this time Benaz said, you know, I'm, I've, I can't take this anymore. I'm now happy to, perhaps happy is the wrong word, I'm now willing to support a prosecution, I'll give you a statement. But I won't give it now, I'll come back tomorrow and and I'll make a statement. And the officer that dealt with her that night tried everything to get her to come into a place of safety, but Benaz said, no, I'm going to go home um, because my mum's there and my mum won't let anything happen to me. And we know now, sadly, that Benaz was murdered the following morning at her home address. Um, and the reason that she was murdered there and then was that she had confided in her mum that she was going to come to the police station and make the statement, and the men of the family had killed her before she had the opportunity to come and make that statement. It was um, it was an absolutely horrific murder, wasn't it, Caroline, when you actually read the accounts of, of, of how it happened? Um, obviously, I'm not expecting you to go into massive detail, but could you just sort of, you know, Give, give some insights into um, what actually happened on that morning. Yeah, you're, you're right. It was an absolutely 
appalling murder. Uh, Bernaz was asleep on, on the floor of the living room of the house, which is where she slept. Three men came in. Um, I can only imagine what that was like for her to, to wake up and see those men coming coming into the room and knowing that, you know, it was true that she was actually going to lose her life at that moment. They strangled Bernaz um, with a long cord that looked like a boot lace, but I think it's actually a cord from trousers. We know from what was from various conversations that we've overheard that it took over half an hour for Bob Bernaz to die. So, and we could tell forensically that it wasn't, you know, a quick strangulation. She was choked over the course of half an hour. And also from, from the conversations, the men boasted of having anally raped her before they strangled her. Uh, they were never actually convicted of rape, but the conversations stated that that's, that's what they had done. Um, they, they, they stated that you know, when they put the cord around her neck, she was so terrified, she, she was vomiting, and a, a man describes himself stamping on her head and standing on her back in order to be able to pull the cord tighter. It was, you know, in fact, the cord was cutting into her neck. So a, a, a more horrific murder, it's difficult to imagine, really. Just totally horrific. I mean, what, like you say, what what she must have been thinking, sort of a young woman sleeping, because she used to sleep on the floor, didn't she? Because there wasn't, yeah. there wasn't space for her to, there was nowhere for her to sleep in the house. So she was actually asleep on the floor when they came in. That's um, right. Yeah, her sister, sister was present, wasn't she, at the time? Her sister was upstairs in the house. I don't think she was actually present in the room where, where Benaz was murdered. Yeah, that's what I meant, yeah. But she was, um, yeah, she, and that was a surprise to the men. Also, from those, those conversations, they were expecting the house to be to be empty, but Benaz's older sister had stayed overnight with her baby. She didn't live there, but she she was there. Uh, and that must have been terrifying for her as well. So you... what, what? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it must have been absolutely horrific. And of course, she would have been completely, you know, sworn to silence um, in those situations because of what, what would happen to her if she'd have disclosed anything to yeah. the police. The, the threat to, to, to everybody's life was very severe sort of throughout the whole investigation. What was the obviously what we know now is that unfortunately Bernaz was placed into a suitcase and we we talked earlier about the suitcase that was presented at uh, Grandma's address on New Year's Eve. Um, we now know she was taken to um, an address in Hansworth in Birmingham. Um, how how long from the twenty second uh, sorry the twenty fourth of Jan? What was the breakthrough for you to kind of link? that address in Hansworth Wood in Birmingham? It took us three months, Jim. Um, it was an extraordinary challenge. And the way that it came about was that on, on the day after we took over the investigation, we, we mounted a large-scale search and arrest operation. Um, in the next couple of weeks, we'd, we'd searched like 47 addresses all over the country trying, trying, to find, trying to find her. It was a race of time, against time to try and find her alive if if humanly possible well we didn't find Benaz and neither did we find most of the suspects we were only able to arrest one which is Mohammed Hammer and he actually came in and gave himself up a, a few days in into the inquiry 
by this time, of course, he'd, he'd been well-versed in what to say by, by dad and uncle, uh, Bonanza's dad and, and her uncle. Um, and he, he said, well, you know, I, I was in the car at, ha- at town, Hounslow, um, but there weren't any threats made to Ramat's life. And he said, I did go to the meeting at Ari Mahmoud's house, but there was no discussion to kill them. You know, Benaz was only mentioned once, and it was for us all to say how happy we were that she'd found a new relationship. Absolute rubbish. Um, and at the same time, we had a young man that was ringing into Ramat Suleimani, the boyfriend, to say, I swear on the Quran, brother, she's alive. I'm trying to find her for you. So custody time was running out. We'd gone in, into extension time. And we uh, came to the decision, Crown Prosecution Service came to the decision that they were sufficient to charge him with murder. So having been positively identified by Ramat Suleimani as the person making the threats to kill, followed by Benazi's disappearance two days later, it was sufficient, just just sufficient to get him charged. Um, And we covertly recorded a number of conversations that he was having with his friends and relations. And we talked earlier about the fact they were boasting about the murder, which, you know, it was a start of a 10. At least we knew we had the right right people. Two of those suspects had already fled to Iraq before we even took on the inquiry. Um, but they started talking about burying this putting Benazi's body in a, in a suitcase and burying her in a back garden somewhere, but we had absolutely no idea where that was. So we looked at, obviously, all of the mobile phone usage. Um, and on the day of the murder, all of the suspects, all of the people we thought we were suspects, because we thought were suspects because we didn't know at that time, they were all in the vicinity of Benazi's home address, all except Mohammed Hammer, the one that we had charged, who turned his mobile off that day and, and didn't use it. And then following the murder, when we thought the murder could have happened, um, Ari Mahmoud goes off to his place of work in, in London. The two Mohammeds, Mohammed Hammer and Mohammed Ali, go up to Birmingham, and Omar Hussein goes up separately to Birmingham. And then not on the day of the murder, but subsequently, the two Mohammeds were driving a hired vehicle, which unbeknown to them had a tracker in it. Um, so we were able to see their movements backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards between Birmingham and London, and that mirrored their mobile phone usage as well. And sometimes, you know, there was one occasion, I think they were back in London for six minutes, turned around and went back again, and we're thinking, what on earth is this we're looking at? You know, we we'd searched addresses everywhere, as I said, and, and, and hadn't found her. But in these conversations, they were talking about when Mohammed dropped the suitcase into the hole, they had broken a pipe and some water was gushing into the into the deposition site and that they'd tried to fix it um, and had been unable, unable to do so. So I thought maybe, just maybe, this to in and fro in is them trying to find a plumber or something to come and fix this, this hole. So we started concentrating on this area of Hansworth in, in Birmingham we, and we, we'd lived and breathed and slept looking for, for this and we knew from the recordings that it wasn't overlooked from the back. It was next door to a house with a bricked up window. And she was buried in a suitcase to the height of a man, they said. And it was obviously right next to the building. They said they buried it under the building. And that's all we knew about it. 
and we we uh, put one of our officers up in West Mid's helicopter to look down on a, on a number of uh, different addresses. And we felt so sure that we would know this address when we saw it, because as I say, we'd lived and breathed and slept it. But we came back that day, 7th of April, that was, with our tails absolutely between our legs, because that description fitted just about every address in, in, in Handsworth. It was quite a rundown area with a lot of Victorian houses that have been sort of bricked up and you know, a derelict. They also said it was next door to a derelict house and, and that fitted quite a, a few of those as well. And we were just absolutely running out of time. We knew that there was a, an application to dismiss the case coming up in, in May um, and we didn't have enough evidence to keep him in custody. He was he was going to get out. So it was, um, you know, again, it had changed from being a race against time to try and find Benaz alive to trying to find her before he was released from custody. And I then put together a sort of large-scale house-to-house operation with West Mid's police. That's how desperate I was, you know, to be knocking on doors, trying to find this, this address. But then right at the last moment, we had another conversation recorded where Mahama was talking to a man called Askander who lived up in up in Birmingham, he lived in Handsworth. And this was the man that we had half an idea was keeping an eye on the deposition site, and we had surveillance team behind him. Um, but he hadn't done anything exciting. He hadn't been to any exciting addresses. But yeah. he did have an exciting conversation um, with Mohammed Hammer because they were boasting about how stupid the police were and then the police will never, ever find her unless there's an informant. Um and Mohammed Hammer asked him, did you put the freezer back on top of the patio? And I knew we had seen it in that aerial footage from West Mid's helicopter. Did you put the patio, sorry, did you put the freezer back on the patio? Now, I definitely, definitely seen it. It was a real eureka moment. Found the tape, because we used to use videotapes in those days, slotted it in, and there it was, 86 Alexandra Road, Handsworth absolutely euphoric you know couldn't, couldn't believe it jumped on the first train straight up to Birmingham and executed our search warrants the next day and obviously um true to form the uh your your uh investigation then led to unfortunately Benaz um and the, the, the water pipe had actually been busted, hadn't it it actually yeah. had been broken and it, it was still still seeping loads and loads of water out wasn't it it, it was Exactly as was described in those recordings, uh, the words of the because we'd read them so many times, trying to interpret these snippets. It wasn't like a, a a wonderful description of anything. They were tiny little snippets that we'd sewn together, and and as we were excavating that site, all of the words of those recordings were coming coming back to us, and we were saying, "Oh, this is what that meant." You know, this this is what they meant by by a, a certain expression, but. It was a it was a strange old old day. It really was, um, and I I thought that we would be so excited to find her, so euphoric at at finding her, but it was just overwhelmingly sad. Of course, you know, I was relieved to find her, and that these people weren't going to get away with it because it was the next stage, you know, along the investigation. Um, so we were sort of pleased from that perspective but it was so sordid and so sad to think that that beautiful young woman had been just pushed in that bag stamped into the bag 
and then lobbed in a hole in this derelict house. But, you know, it was just absolutely awful. Um, so, yeah, glad, you know, mix of emotions, really. Yeah, I think I, you, you actually said as well when she was found, which was even more sort of upsetting, was she was in the, in the suitcase. She was like in the fetal position, wasn't she? When, she, she when, was, when the bag was open. Yeah, she was curled up in the fetal position like a baby in the womb and that's something we all think of as, as something safe. And, you know, and it's a natural position that people tuck themselves into when, when they're, they're frightened or they're in danger as well. But that, that so, I don't know, I never know quite how to articulate that, but it's something that particularly gets me, that, that yeah. correlation between the baby in the womb and her in that bag. It's so wrong. Yeah, so, so wrong. Obviously, you've got some good evidence at that point. Um, Ari, the the uncle, and obviously dad, Mahmood, um, were arrested. How did they, how did they sort of um, perform when they were interviewed? What were they like? Uh, they, were, they were no comment interviews um, from, from that stage. When they were initially interviewed... Ari was just extraordinarily arrogant. I've never quite come across anyone quite like him. Uh, I, I didn't interview him myself, but it was video interview, so we were able to sort of watch it, um, watch it live as it as it was happening. But he was just supremely confident and arrogant and dismissive. And how you know, how dare you ask me that question? I don't actually answer those, those, those questions. He was just so used to being king of his own organization he's almost almost like a little mini mafia boss you know that he he just treated us with absolute contempt um so it was a very satisfying day i have to say that when when we did charge him uh, because i was very very fearful that he was going to get away with it um at at one point you know you you think oh there's just no way i'm going to let you get away with this but you can only act on the evidence that you've got so um, we never actually got any forensic evidence, although we had found the body. She was in such a state of advanced decomposition that we we couldn't even get her own DNA from her, yet um, anybody else's. So um, we we tried wet sieving all of the the soil that was um, uh, in that grave site in the hope that we would turn up sort of either cigarettes or hairs or fingernails or something. Absolutely nothing. But it did give us just enough to charge Ari Mahmood. Um, and he was just, you know, we also taped, taped some of his conversations and they were a real eye-opener because he was, you know, there were conversations I remember him having with his wife where she said, well, he he said originally, you know, that he, um, the reason we had to kill her was that we only had six hours left. She was going to go to the police. She's such an informant. She's just a spy. Um, we had well, We had to kill her. Um, because you know she was she would have told them everything, and we would have all been arrested, and no one would have known what to say. But at least now, two of us have, have escaped. That's the two that have gone to Iraq, um, and the rest of us know what to say. And his wife says, "Well, you know, my husband, if you knew that she was going to the police, why didn't you simply leave her alone, and then you wouldn't have had to answer any questions?" He says, "Shut up, you stupid woman. When I, when I talk, you listen. You know nothing of these things." I'm not in here for anything I'm ashamed of. I have done justice. And that really, really sums up that mentality of her being in the wrong, Banaz being the, the one that was wrong, and them having restored 
the, the community's justice. But he also talked about um, Mahmoud, who's been been as his father, coming to him the previous October, asking for help for killing one of his daughters. And we couldn't really get our heads around that. Well, what you know, what is that about? Because she wasn't seen kissing um, Ramat until December. So why was he trying to kill her in in October? Years down the line, we found out that that was actually another one of his daughters that he wanted to kill at that point. That was Bekal. Bekal, yeah. Yeah, who was living um, estranged from the family, living independently without their consent and going out with a black guy that they absolutely disapproved of. So then when this knowledge became public about Banaz seeing Ramat, they simply switched the plan. And instead of killing Bekal, they they killed Banaz instead. Yeah, because it was actually uh, it was actually Beck it was Beckel's brother that was sent by Mahmoud to kill her, wasn't he? He lured her to um, a, a remote location and tried to kill her with a with a dumbbell. And if I'm right in saying she fought back, and and he then broke down and effectively was was a quivering wreck then, and 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 obviously then left her and di- and didn't carry on with 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 the dirty deed. Yeah, uh, that pr- pretty much it. You know, it, in a scenario that was amazingly similar to Dad's attempt to kill Benaz on New Year's Eve, the methodology was very, very similar. Uh, that he tricked Bacal into meeting him, saying, "Oh, I've got a cleaning job for you," and she needed some money. She was happy to do that. It was somewhere that wasn't covered by CCTV or anything like that, and he gave her a suitcase to carry. That's how similar it was. Carry this suitcase, walk down the path in front of me, don't turn around, don't look at what I'm doing. It's virtually word for word. And when she's walking down the path in front of him, he smashed her over the head with a dumbbell. Um, I'm not sure about fighting back. She said she was like semi-conscious, but she she was holding him around the knees and begging him not to begging him not to kill her. And then she describes them both sitting on a bench together, both of them absolutely crying. She says he was crying like a baby and saying, I'm really sorry, Bechal. You know, Dad told me I had to do it. I'm the big boy. It's my job to, you know, carry, carry out the killing. And he had paid, Dad had paid him to, to, to kill his own sister. Um, and you can imagine how awful that is for that young man as well to be caught in that position. Yeah. He's 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 in this situation where he's got no choice, as he? he's got to do what Dad yeah. and and no doubt Harry Harry what Harry wanted him to do because yeah. he knew in um he knew that 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 was his his mission to restore that honor. Uh, um, absolutely, just an absolutely awful scenario for everybody caught up in it. Well, obviously, Harry and Mahmoud had been charged, but what really kind of you know, it resonates with me again with this particular case was that you've already mentioned a couple of them and then obviously the murderers had, had fled to Iraq. And we know um, that they were boasting and they were literally being treated as heroes. And obviously at that time, nobody had ever been extradited back to the UK from that particular country. Um, and you obviously went on a bit of a mission to do that. Just how difficult was it to get those two individuals back to the UK? It was extremely difficult, and, and it and it took a very long time. So, the the exactly as you you say, Jim, we we were getting feedback 
from Iraqi Kurdistan that these two were sitting in the cafes boasting about what they'd done and being fated for being manly. And we think, you are just not going to get away with that. You are not going to come come to the UK and kill this beautiful girl and then go back and boast about it. It's just not happening. Um, so we approached the CPS um, extradition team and first of all, we were told that there was no extradition treaty with, with Iraq and you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I do know how to use the internet and found that that, that wasn't true. Um, so that, that was our first challenge that we went back and, and challenged the CPS on that. Um, and then they, they said, OK, well, you know, there, there is a treaty. It's dated 1933. It's never been used. You can imagine the what's happened in the world since 1933 and you know, was it extant? They didn't know. So they said they would make some inquiries with, with the Home Office and Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and it dragged on and on and on for months, and I was chasing it and just being batted off, basically. Um, and so we just pursued that and pursued that and pursued that, and it, it transpired that even the inqui- inquiries weren't even being made, which was absolutely infuriating. Um, so we went back and challenged the CPS again, and we were told, yes, okay, it is extant. The, the treaty is extant, um, but they have a constitution that says they cannot extradite their own nationals. And so therefore, they didn't want to ask. They thought, they thought no, there wasn't one for them, but that really didn't sit well with me at all. You know, I just thought it's for them to say whether they want to extradite their own nationals or not. We, we just need to ask the question. And if they say no, then I can put my hand on my heart and say, I've done everything within my power to try and get the, these people back and I can't do it. But just not even to ask is was just just not on as far as I was concerned. And so we sort of lobbied them and lobbied them um, and got the Home Office and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office on board. And there was talks of judicial reviews and one thing and another all added up that we persuaded the Crown Prosecution Service please to make this extradition request. And it's very, very difficult to achieve because the, the treaty is between the government, so the British government and the government of Iraq, which sits in Baghdad. Um, but the, the, the relevant court and the relevant government is the Kurdish regional government, which is a semi-autonomous region in the north. So Baghdad said they were happy in principle, but they deferred the decision to um, the Kurdish regional government. Um, in in Kurdistan, very, very political, and there are two main political parties who are completely at, at odds with each other. So the government is sits in Erbil, and that's ruled, that area is ruled by one political party. And they that government eventually agreed that it was constitutional they, they could they could extradite their own, their own nationals which was a great first step but then it had to get passed to a court which is in Sulaymaniyah which is 3 hours away through beautiful beautiful mountainous regions nothing that you you think of as Iraq at all and they were the court was run in a, by an area with the opposite um political party so that neither of them wanted to help each other at all and they both wanted to 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 look good out of it just as our politics is over here you know it's nothing simple this is all happening in a country with absolute minimal infrastructure anyway they and they've 
they've had a you know a number of wars, both civil and international. Um, it, it, the whole thing was terribly, terribly difficult to achieve. And of course, we were told right from the outset that corruption is absolutely endemic. And I had no real hopes of being treated fairly by them. Um, but I ended up going out there four times. And I, you know, just, just to give evidence and, and sort out disclosure issues or whatever, like a horrible, horrible phone call um, one Christmas from the ambassador um, to say that they're going to let... Sorry, I'll just wind back on the story. Muhammad Ali was arrested, first of all, out there. He had run over and killed a young man out there. Um, and he had paid his the blood money to the family and was about to be released from... from from the jail, um, and a women's rights organisation who had been following our case lobbied the judge to say, hold on a minute, he's wanted in the UK for this murder. So I got a phone call from the FBI one Sunday to say, you know, do you want this bloke back? And I said, well, yes, we do, but we haven't got the permission from our, our Crown Prosecution Service won't make this application. So this is in the middle of all of our sort of negotiation with, with the CPS. And they said, well, you know, they want to know, do you want him back or not? And they said they would hold hold him for us while we made that um, inquiry with the Crown Prosecution Service. So me, I have made sure that that was lawful for them to keep him in, in custody for that. And, and so therefore, that's what's happened. So he, he was the easier of the two to get back. Um, and having gone through all of this bureaucracy that I've just described to you he, he we finally got him back on on the 29th of, of June um, 2009 I think which is an absolutely wonderful totally totally surreal moment to see that the lights of that little plane coming in to the to this little airport um, was just this this whole investigation was just a, a roller coaster of emotions, but that was a really tearful one. I just c couldn't believe we were actually getting him back. But Omar Hussein was altogether more difficult to get hold of. Um, he was um, hiding up in a little town north of Sulaymaniyah um, called Rania, and we couldn't even get the locals to take us up there in in Iraq. So I, I had a protection team that I was working with when I was out there. But that you know, even the the local police said it is a no go area. It is totally run by the clan, and we won't come home alive, any of us. So so we 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 couldn't get up there. He he had two very very influential brothers. One was in the Asaish, which is their um, secret police, and another in the Peshmerga, which is like the standing forces. And even the local mayor, his house had been raked with gunfire as a deterrent. Like, don't bother trying to hand, hand this guy in. It's absolutely not happening. And the police would tell you stories about them trying to follow Omar. He would smuggle across the border into to Iran. And one day he was where he was being followed. So he stopped his car, walked back to the police car, slashed all the, the tires with a big sort of machete style of knife. Bear in mind, everyone out there is armed to the teeth, but they didn't dare touch this. They didn't dare touch him. He was above the law. So he was difficult to get. Um, but eventually he fell out with his brother. Um, there was there was a dispute over either one of them was having an affair with another one's wife. And the brother shot him in the leg with an AK-47 and shattered his thigh. And he ended up coming into a hospital and getting arrested. So eventually he came into the custody system. Um, 
but as I say, we we got a phone call from the the ambassador to say they were going to release him because he he Omar was saying he was the wrong Omar Hussein and that stupid woman's got the wrong wrong guy, um, and the, all of the clan were going to come and give evidence to say that at the time of the murder he was he was in Iraq at a family wedding, and the judge would have no choice but to, to let him go there wouldn't be sufficient evidence so yes it would be constitutional but there wouldn't be sufficient evidence to let to let him come out and at that time the elections were on and everyone bombs everyone else out there at that particular time so there were no flights going out to to uh, Kurdistan I couldn't even get out there to give our side of the story um, but a week later they lifted the the ban on the flights and the DS and I were you know straight back out there um, and went to give evidence in their court. Um, and I didn't even know whether they'd listened to me. I didn't know if I'd be allowed to give evidence. I didn't know how it would be as a woman um, being treated out there, whether they'd give me any credibility, whether it was all just so corrupt that it was it was all a pointless exercise, but I bloody well wasn't going to go without a fight. Um, you know, I was just had to give it my all. So um, I went to the court. Um, I gave evidence. I was able to prove that Omar was in Birmingham, um, certainly the day after Benaz's murder, because he got into a fight and ended up having his fingerprints and photograph taken um, and just disproved everything that he, he was saying, basically. Um, and he was very cocky. He was absolutely so confident when he came into the courtroom that he was going to be walking out of one door. And he was very, very surprised and shocked to be taken back down to the cells. You know, it was another gratifying moment. Um, and not long after that, you know, we, we got him back as well. There were a few false starts. We sent a few planes out that didn't come back with anybody. And, you know, it was an expensive exercise, to say the least, but enormously gratifying, enormously gratifying. That's some very uh, understanding senior officers there. That must have it, cost an absolute arm and a leg. It did. The whole investigation was hugely expensive, but I had the most wonderful, supportive senior officers. And I think, you know, to my way, they, they, they played it exactly right. They didn't interfere too much, but they were there for me when I needed them to be. Oh, that's what you need. That's absolutely mm -hmm. what you need, particularly with a complex investigation like that. You need, as the SIO, to be able to just get on with it and get that support from the top without having all you that do. extra pressure. Bad enough doing the investigation, never mind having that extra pressure on top of you. Um, obviously, got all, got everyone back. Um, appreciate there were three, was I right? There were three trials altogether um, from sort of two thousand and seven onwards. Is that right? I think so. I think that's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, what sort of sentences did they all get, Caroline? Well, they they were all convicted of murder, um, so they all got automatic life imprisonment. Dad and Uncle Ari, I think, got 22 and 23 years before they can apply for parole. Mohammed Hammer pleaded guilty as soon as that, as soon as we were allowed to use the recordings of those conversations. He, you know, he, he just pleaded guilty then, but still argued the toss about what the conversations actually meant and tried to say, oh, you know, he only buried the body and whatever. So there was a separate hearing called Newson hearing to determine his level of guilt. Um, because he pleaded guilty, he got 17 years. Um, and remember, that's just a, a recommendation of when he can apply for parole. It doesn't mean to say that he will come out then. Um, and very similar for Omar Hussein and Muhammad Ali, life imprisonment with 22, 23 years. Just fantastic sentences and absolute 
How did you stay married through all that, Caroline? I'm oh. shocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a very, very understanding husband. And he, got, right. he was absolutely blooming marvellous because he just took over. I have one son at university and two kids still at home at that time that I barely saw. But, you know, he fed the kids every night and um, it was just generally supportive. You know, I remember waking up in the middle of the night. You know, suddenly all my best ideas come to me in the middle of the night when I'm asleep. I know it's a bit of a freaky thing to say, but sometimes things just pop into your head when you're asleep. And I would wake up and, you know, write oh, I had a little notebook next to the bed and I'd write something down in there and say, do you want me to get up and make you a cup of tea? <laughs> what a nice bloke. <laughs> just what, what a nice man. What a top man. What a top man. <laughs> yeah, shall I go make you a cup of tea, love? No, don't worry. <laughs> just one thing I wanted to pick up on with the trial, which I thought was absolutely amazing, was the fact that Beckel actually gave evidence, mm-hmm. didn't she? And that must have been, and I know obviously it was done in very controlled sort of way, but how brave was it for her to do that? It was just incredibly brave. She's one of two heroes in that story, really. So, you know, Ramat Ram- Ram- was equally yeah. heroic. Um but that young woman was 22 years old, and uh, it's really difficult for anyone to give evidence against their family. You know, nobody wants to criminalise their family. You love your family. You just want that abusive behaviour to stop. Um, but and you know, so it's it's difficult anyway. But to know that those people will kill you. And there were concerted efforts to find her and to find Ramat. We could tell by these recorded conversations that they were looking for these people to know that all of those community, we're talking over 50 people that were involved in Benaz's murder, that they were there looking for you and they want to kill you for what you're doing. It's a a different sort of courage. It's an absolutely incredible level of courage. And the fact that she had to, to, you know, go into police protection and leave behind everything she's ever known. Uh, it's just that incredible heroism from my my perspective. And she actually says to this day that she kind of still to this day lives in fear, doesn't she? She does. Yeah. Yeah. She does. Yeah. And am I right in saying, sadly, that, um, that Ramat did um, take his own life? He, he did. Uh, he, it's unbelievably sad that having survived all of that, that he just never really recovered from from the loss of Benaz and also the loss of his friends, the loss of his community. He came to the UK looking for a better life. It's one of the things I find particularly sad about the whole thing. And the perpetrators were some of the people that he came into the country with. He lived as, with them as asylum seekers. He didn't just lose Benaz in the most awful circumstances. He, he he lost her to them, and then he lost them as well. Um, you know, he again had to go into police protection. He he lost contact with everybody that he loved, um, and it was just too much for him. So he, I think May, May two thousand and sixteen. I think if I'm right, thinking that that's when he I got a phone call. I was retired by then. You know, say I've just got some sad news for you. It was absolutely just devastating news to think through all of that. If you knew how frightened he was when he gave evidence in that second trial, second trial nearly just didn't happen. He was so, so frightened. And his family were being threatened. And he just said, I just simply can't do it. 
right at the last minute. I mean, we deferred the beginning of the second trial for a week while he was because he was just refusing to give evidence. Um, and then he just capitulated after a week and said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it, you know. But it's so, so difficult. I don't think anyone should detract from – it's just not an, an easy thing to do. You know, someone on the outside would probably say, oh, come on, what are you doing? You know, that you, yeah. you, you, you know, your partner's been murdered, but it's just not that simplistic, is it? No. It really no. isn't. When you look at what we've discussed today, it, it, it is so complex and takes so much courage to do what he did. Yeah, um, he just kept saying, Jim, I can't lose anyone else, Caroline. Please don't make me go. Please don't make me go. I can't lose anyone else. I've lost everyone I love. Please don't make me lose anyone else. It's really, you know, indescribable what these people have gone through. Absolutely. Caroline, there's a, there's a lot more awareness now about honour-based violence, but I still don't think there's enough, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted you on today, because I want to keep you know, spreading the word around this really, really horrendous crime. How, how do we change things moving forward? What, what, what are your views? I think Bonanza's murder was a catalyst for change initially. I think we, we raised a lot of awareness at the time. But for me personally, it feels that that's fallen away a little bit. I think we've improved a, a lot of things. We've got national strat- policing strategy, um, and we've got much more and much better relationships with partners and third sector organisations who, to me, are absolutely invaluable. Um, but still, we had this HMIC inspection five years ago, which only found that three forces in the whole country were you know, sufficiently equipped to deal with honour-based violence um, in, in, you know, right across the board. Massive disappointment for me to think that all, all of those, you know, the whole point of providing that training is to prevent another murder like Benaz's and to feel that that had slipped away uh, was a massive disappointment. I think there's a number of things, and thank you for inviting me on to, to help raise awareness because I think it's just something that we need to keep banging on with, to, you know, uh, to get that message across. We need to keep raising awareness about it in whichever format we can, whether it's through uh, podcasts such as this or whether it's books or television shows. I don't care who tells the story, just tell it. It's a story that needs to be told. That, that's the first thing. We've lost so many police officers o- over the, the last 10 years. And with that, we've lost an awful lot of experience. So, yes, some of those are being replaced, um, but they need the training that comes with it. And I'm not talking about, a, you know, an NCALC, click, click, the, click the machine and, and off you go. It needs to be stories told by survivors to embed some of that learning as well. Um, so I think it needs to be done together with third sector. Um, and it needs to be done regularly. And police officers don't stay like 20, 30 years like we used to. It was a job for life. The co- you know the contracts are much shorter. There's a much faster turnover of police officers. So there aren't those experienced people on the shifts to help share that as well. So there's a combination of things, really. It's almost like the perfect storm. So there's lack of officers, there's lack of training, and there's lack of time because they're racing from one thing to another and I'm perfectly aware that honour-based violence is only one thing in a whole spectrum 
of offences uh, and incidents that police have police officers have to deal with on a daily basis. They can't dedicate all their time to learning about this. But it's one of those things that takes a lot of time to investigate, time and patience. So you need that framework of knowledge to understand what you're being told in the first place. But the time to listen to, to when a victim's telling you, it's not like I've had my purse stolen. Um, you could tell that story in five minutes flat. Trying to tell of little things that have happened over a lifetime, you know, you're talking days and days to get that to get that right. We need more funding for support organisations. Um, we just need to take it seriously. I was looking at a report that was released on the anniversary of Bonanza's death, 24th of January, that looked at just that just at one aspect of policing, which is the way we record. Still call myself we the way police record on a based violence. And, and it's not even consistent across the country. You know, how, how can you how can you treat something seriously when you don't even know how much of it's going on? And when you're not using the same language, you're not you're not on terms and you're not flagging it consistently, there needs to be a wholly consistent approach. Otherwise we're going to end up in a situation where we where these these murders are going to continue to happen. But it, it comes back to what we were saying earlier with that um, incident with the um, the police officer on New Year's Eve, that there's a lot of help out there. And I think if the training is right, my view is, you know, that those officers hopefully will spot the signs and ask for the relevant help. And, you know, we said it earlier in the conversation, just spot the signs and raise the alarm bells. And that is the first step for me to trying to save that life. Because yeah, you are right, officers are so busy out there on response. Now, I've got co- ex-colleagues that, you know, they're at their wits' end at the yeah. moment because demand is so high. But I think it's just about spotting those initial signs and having the, um, you know, having the the, um, the the belief, you know, that there's something not right here and I just need to ask for help. And I think that will go a long way to try and help with this with this absolute disgraceful crime. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You've not got to be an absolute expert. I mean, no. Police have to be a little bit of expert at everything, don't they? You need, yeah, you need to know enough that you understand what people are telling you and then for there to be centres of expertise that you, you can you can go to. But, yeah, I've had people crying on the phone to me, Jim, who, who, have, who have been tried to tell their story to police and, and not being able to get their, their story across. You know, people just simply don't understand what it is that they're, t- they're telling them. Lovely people, lovely people crying on the, on the telephone. They're just like, they're just not believed or they're just not understood. And I've been able to feed them in to, to the right police officers and, and you know, get, get them help. But they shouldn't have to come to me. They're welcome to. No, they shouldn't. And we will, we will continue to raise awareness on this podcast, and I'm hoping to get other guests on on board um, over the next um, year or so. So we will continue to do that. J- just from me, really, Caroline, and I'm sure the the audience will, will echo this: is that one thing that really sort of um, is amazing about this case is just how you and your team took on that surrogate role of you know you as probably mum to to Benaz. And, and took on that really caring role because, like you've said yourself, you know, you go into the house, there's no photographs, you're dredging a lake, there's no, there's no, there's no family members, you know, that, that really even you know, come out and saw what was going on on, on on that day. So really just a big thank you from me, really, that, you know, you did care and did 
what I would say is an absolutely amazing job and um, just a big thank you. No, thank you. Um, no, no, I really no problem. appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Um, you've written a book on this particular um, case, which I've read. I do tend to read the books before I interview guests, and it's, it is, I'm not just saying this, it is a fantastic read. Um, sad circumstances, as we've obviously catalogued today, but I think, it, it again, it helps continue to raise awareness of this you know, horrendous crime. Where, where, can, where can people find your book? Um, it's available on online at all the usual all the usual suspects, um, and from sort of uh, you know independent booksellers when we open up again. Um, it wasn't the best time to to publish a book, as you can imagine, dur- dur- during the lockdown. But again, it, it was just about wanting to get that story out there and raise raise awareness. So um, yeah, it's very much available online. Please please do go on. And, and it's called Honor Achieving Justice for Bernaz Mahmoud. It is. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Caroline, is there any question that I haven't asked you today that you would have liked me to have asked you? No, there isn't. Thank you. It's, it's, it's been lovely talking to you um, about this this really, really sad case. Um, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to raise awareness on the subject. Thanks very much. No, thank you. I, I, I really can't. I was so excited to interview you today. I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. So thank you it's it's run a little bit over the hour but you know what i don't really care because this is a, a story that needs to be told and i'm sure our listeners will dedicate the time to listen to this this really important case so um thank you for that um just like to thank our listeners really today um this has been a fantastic interview with caroline um please like rate and subscribe to the community safety podcast we really want to get our mission across to as many listeners as possible Please spread the word. Um, we want to change communities for the better in the 21st century, but we can't do it on our own. We need your help. Um, and also, please link into the uh, the website as well, which is www.thecommunitysafetypodcast.co.uk. And we'll see you for the next episode. Thanks very much for listening. I'm in total awe of Caroline Good. She just epitomizes what policing is all about. She's professional, she's hardworking, and she's just one of the most determined people that I've ever come across. To get a conviction in the way that she did with her amazing team, and taking into consideration as well, the lengths that she went to extradite two of the offenders from Iraq just absolutely blown away by the way that she conducted that investigation and we should all be eternally grateful to her i know also for a fact that um, she still visits banazi's grave uh, on quite a regular basis she's just a lovely caring individual and um, i can't thank her enough for everything she did for banaz Thank you again for listening to the Community Safety Podcast. We really do appreciate you coming on board with this important project. Please like, rate and subscribe to the podcast. We really want to get our mission across to as many people as possible. Please tell your friends, tell your colleagues, spread the word far and wide and we'll catch you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Community Safety Podcast. 
with thanks for support from St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global and Me Learning. Join us again next time to help us explore how we can transform our communities in the 21st century, 21st century. on the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon. Jim Nixon.